So tell me why you decided to study medicine. Um, honestly, I don't think I'll be able to answer that. There was, there was no epiphany and there wasn't like a, a you know, momentous thing in my life that led me to it. I think it was just something I always wanted to do. Maybe I was just fascinated by medicine. I've always been really good at sciences. I loved biology. And, uh, and I think my family really encouraged it as well. Uh, I didn't even have a role model as a doctor. There was nobody I could see and say, hey, I want to be like that person. But it was just something that just inherently inside of me. And I just really wanted to pursue it. So, um, yeah, I've, I think I've just always loved medicine. And that. I think it's... Uh, so I'm a bit of a control freak. I like to fix things up. I need to make things right. I'm the eldest daughter, so I'm, I've always been the responsible one. And I think those were some qualities, like, um, as a doctor, I knew, you know, you fix things up, you fix people, you fix ailments. And uh, I think that was, uh, you know, you have a problem and you have, you have the answer to solve it. And I think that was something that was really, um, it, it just attracted me to the profession. Uh, also, in Pakistan, especially where I'm from, uh, doctors are very well respected, like almost revered. If they're, you know, considered almost godlike here. So I don't know. I think it was a little bit of that, and a little bit of the fact that I'm such a control freak inherently that I just wanted yeah. to, you know, be the person that could fix things. For yeah. People. And so, why not fixing houses? Why why medicine, where it's dealing with people? Um. I guess it's, but I mean, uh, that's a very interesting question. Actually, I think it's more to do with the fact that, um, you know, when you, it's also a little bit about helping people. It, I, as in, I know a lot of people would answer saying, you know, we would love to help people and we don't like to see people suffer. And obviously it's all of that. You can't be a good doctor and be inhumane or be robotic, but, um, I think it's just something about the human body. It's self-correcting, it's self-working, it's completely independent. And uh, that just fascinated me. I loved biology. I loved the way the human body worked. Um, and I was just fascinated by our, um, you know, just the system that we were born with and uh, anything related to that. So I think that was more, a building is just a static building. A human body is forever changing and evolving. And it's just so much more interesting um, I think you've made such an important point there. I think, like you've mentioned, the human body continues to change. And so medicine, through research, it continues to develop. Things keep changing forever. And it's always interesting. You, you're never up to date with anything because there's just new things coming up every day. You're learning. You, you're never, never not a student when you're a doctor. So, exactly. Yeah, so you're learning and every single day. And so tell me about the process of getting into medical school in Pakistan. What was that like? Right. So um, essentially you have to do your O-levels, A-levels. You need to have your all three science subjects and maths. So physics, chemistry, biology and mathematics. Uh, you need to score a certain grade to get into certain unit to be eligible for certain universities here. So in Pakistan, private universities, some private universities are amazing. And um, a couple of government universities are amazing. So we have that disparity as well. So it depends on what your aim is, either to get into a private university or a government university. And then you give their respective MCATs. Every single university has a separate, as in it did have separate MCATs when I was applying. 
now they've sort of universalized it as one universal MCAT exam. Uh, but mm. at the time when I applied, there were separate MCAT exams. You get the desired grades in your O and A levels, and you sit for the MCAT. And based on the cutoff of um, the, that specific university, you get put into uh, different. And so, do you have to write a personal statement, or is it merely based on grades and this exam? No, it's not. There are no personal statements, no application. Applications like very robotic applications with your bio data, your grades. The certificates and that's basically it there's nothing uh, there's no emotional uh, sort of uh, you know connotation attached to yeah. medical school applications here not none at all and so do you get interviewed yes once you clear the, once you clear the exam you're called in for an interview uh, some universities have multiple interview sessions my university had the one and uh, then based on that we were uh, given admission Okay, and what's the difference between a private and is there any advantages or disadvantages between the two? Uh, right, so a private university here means you're paying a lot more money, uh, but also it is your your education is completely in English and the kind of patients you treat, your clinics are completely in English as well. Not that that's a huge advantage because at the end of the day when you're meeting patients, they come from multilingual backgrounds. But... Um, I think for people applying abroad, it's a good way to sort of um, have exposure to that kind of system. Uh, private universities are smaller and uh, they have like a very limited number of students. So in case anyone wants like a more uh, intimate environment, it hel it's helpful in that way. As opposed to gov government universities that have like a thousand students per batch or more. Uh, which is a lot for her because my university we had about 150 people in my batch um, so we were all very closely acquainted our classes our clinics were very small um, other than that private universities are uh, government universities are very very cheap uh, but they're harder to get into as well um, because there's so many people apply there and yeah. uh, with private universities Actually, with private universities, your uh, clinical exposure is very less because, you know, you have private patients come in, they would rather talk to a doctor than a medical student. Whereas yeah. in government universities, you have a plethora of patients from every single socioeconomic background, mostly from the lower socioeconomic background, who are just grateful to have someone see them. So be it a medical student or a doctor, they're just happy to be attended. Yeah, and that's really interesting that you've said that. So when you start your internship mm -hmm. after do you find that there's much difference in your medical knowledge when you're both starting your internship then? Um, I think I wouldn't call it a difference in knowledge because at the end of the day, our curriculums are the same and we're reading the same books. But I think there is a difference of um, your our clinical experience. Yeah. So, for example, as an internee, I would draw eight uh, patients' bloods every morning in a private hospital, whereas in a government setup, there'd be 25 patients just under one intern. Yeah. So, and so, I, yes. so, again, out of curiosity, so if you go to a private medical school, does that mean that you your internship will be in a private hospital as well? So, so there are certain... Um, you can actually choose to apply wherever. You can choose to apply to another private hospital that offers an internship program uh, or you can choose to apply to a government setup as a house officer 
the reason why I chose a private hospital was because it was affiliated with my university. So I had an automatic in because I crossed a certain grade threshold that was required to get into the internship program of my hospital. Okay, that makes sense. And so tell me a little bit about medicine and working as an intern in Karachi then. Um, so Karachi is, uh, it is a, it's, it's one of the biggest, it is a, the biggest city in Pakistan. And uh, you will see every single kind of uh, socioeconomic background living in, in each area. So we had uh, a rural Tachiabadi right behind our hospital, but we also were located in one of the poshest areas in the city. So um, personally for me, internship was uh, attending very uh, high VIP politicians, as well as people who came in from Afghanistan and uh, people who came in from the slums who had things like polio, scoliosis to, you know, uh, very uh, minor ailments to very severe ailments as well. So I think yeah. we got a very uh, good variety of patients from all kinds of backgrounds, which gave us a very in-depth exposure to um, every single kind of problems medically that the people yeah. of the city were facing. Um, and... Mm-hmm. So, again, just out of curiosity, so what is your day-to-day life like as an intern? And how does that differ to you being a medical student? Um, all right. So, as an intern, we are basically, because of the private, our private hospital, especially if it's a small, compact hospital, there were about, uh, some departments had two interns uh, per department. So, for example, orthopedics just had two interns. So a day in life would be you know being there for rounds attending receiving patients uh preparing patients for operations scrubbing into surgeries receiving patients back having overnight calls we were on call for 36 hours straight um every every fourth day Uh, so we were working like um 70 about 70 hours every week and um uh, it had every you know, receiving patients, history taking, prescribing medication, well, not prescribing medication, but basically just kind of um, taking orders from the consultant, following through with them, taking care of the patients on the floor, uh, attending to the ER sometimes as well. Um, And so it was basic, you were basically like a proper doctor and you had proper responsibilities, you had patients under your care, as opposed to med school where, uh, so in Pakistan, we have five years of med school and our Fourth, uh, our clinics start from the third year, which is like two hours of clinics per day. And then from fourth year onwards, we get assigned into uh, departments. So we would have our pediatric rotation, surgery rotation. And essentially, we do theoretical uh, lectures. And then we'd have a few hours in, in the day going into wards and taking histories from patients and practicing our um, examinations and such. So an internship was uh, a lot more responsibility and it was a lot more uh, patient um, interaction whereas clinics and as med school students were, were it was more uh, like how you would practice on a simulation in an exam to be honest yeah and so again that sounds really really interesting and so considering your medical course was in english and i guess the language of pakistan is Urdu, so how how does how does that work you write your medical notes in English and then communicate with your patients in their native tongue? Uh, 
yes that's exactly how we do it our history uh, so we basically have a template for history taking and certain everything we note down is in english because that is the official language of the country uh, but dealing with patients we would have non urdu speaking patients as well who would speak in other regional languages like sindhi and pashto so um, so i think it was uh, i don't think a lot of students found it hard to translate because that's what we've been doing our entire life is yeah. studying in english but we uh, like our norm language at yeah. stuff is urdu of course so it wasn't that problematic but um, i don't know if it was fortunate or unfortunate for us but because we were based in a very specific area um, of the city yeah. most of our patients yeah. were english speaking so yeah. it was um, easier for us to communicate but also our urdu speaking patients we could always ask for help from the staff or other students if there were some certain regional dialects that we couldn't understand um, but i think once um, i think most of the patients are also uh, very basic in their explanation so it's much easier to transcribe that into english and write that down yeah and so again if you compare this with the governmental hospital mm-hmm. and right. governmental med school are they also taught in english or are they taught in their... no they're definitely taught in english most of our universities yes and like i said it's the official language they're taught in english as well um but the kind of patients they have i think uh, are more native like yeah. they're more urdu speaking so yeah. so maybe they have uh, I I'm not sure if they write it down in Urdu I I think every do- yeah, because the official language is English and we all have our records in English I don't yeah. think any hospital here writes anything down in Urdu Yeah which because makes sense for the doctors yes and unless we were exactly. giving something to the patient for example sometimes uh, consent forms had to be transcribed to Urdu before we could give it to a patient yeah. who could read it um, Yeah yeah but which I think most sense. of it uh, most of the time um, it was just easier to translate it. once you were yeah. writing it down for records yes of course and with the fact that you undertook your internship in karachi was there sts in pakistan right so um it's a little difficult to get into another to get into an internship in, at another city in pakistan because you need all sort of paperwork for it um you need your domiciles and other things that I won't get into at <laughs> for you to know yeah. it but um you sort of need official documents to uh, sort of join a hospital at another city because we have um provincial governments and every single provincial government has a different set of rules for their medics so it's much yeah. easier to join house job um where you've done your medical school for yeah and if you were to choose another city mm-hmm. do you have any preference as to which city you would have chosen Oh definitely I would go up into the mountains because I've just had it with the city life <laughs> after high school I really wanted to go up um north to a small town to the small town of Hunza it's surrounded by mountains it's always cold and they have a very good government hospitals there but like I said it required a lot of paperwork and also uh young do- interns in Pakistan are not paid as well so supporting yeah. living separately you know food uh, lodging and all of that would have just been an added cost yeah so it sounds like there's a load of additional costs to consider before you're even moving for an internship definitely definitely yeah. it's just more inconvenient too because uh, our intern years are very difficult i mean the hours we're working are very long 
just the comforts yeah. of home are quite a blessing you know you have your food ready someone's doing your laundry for you and it's just as lazy as that might sound it's just very convenient to focus on work when you don't have to worry about all of this of course and being the first from your family to enter medicine and become a doctor how do you think that's affected the way you perceived the career and how it's actually ended up becoming um i th- i think because i surrounded myself with people who also wanted to be medics we were all very uh, clear headed about what our life was going to be like and uh, how the career was going to progress as opposed to the perception my family has of doctors uh for example a lot of people uh, didn't realize that i wouldn't straight away be a doctor right after mbbs that i'd have to go to an entire intern year and even after intern year i'm not a proper um consultant yet and i can't do clinics i have to you know pass exams yeah. so it's i think people don't realize that it's a very long journey with multiple examinations and it's just not that easy to you know, no. at an OPD, which was just something my uh, family was uh, very confused by. Um, <laughs> and they thought I'd be some sort of specific kind of doctor by now. And I'm like, no, I just finished here. I still have years to go before I train and become anything um, specific it, in a field. Exactly. And I think it's so difficult to explain to someone who's not in medicine. Yeah, because I feel like med students are also a sort of, I don't think shamed would be a good word, but sort of um, you raise a lot of eyebrows when you studied for like five to six years and you're still, you have nothing to show for it. And people are like, yeah. And people are like yeah. what have you been doing this entire time? How are you still not, you know, <laughs> minting money yet? And it's very hard to explain that I have to clear exams to even be able to join a residency, let alone, uh, you know, sit at a clinic or anything like that. Exactly, and is so important. That actually leads very nicely into my next question. Considering you've had so many additional costs to consider, and also of course medicine's been such a long journey, what made you choose the Plabit exam? Um, I so I've always wanted to train outside of Pakistan. I feel like Pakistan has an amazing medical industry. In fact, we're uh, now coming out as a new medical as a location for medical tourism where people come to get procedures done just because we have amazing medical facilities and great doctors but unfortunately the training programs here are lacking um, either in facilities we're not very technologically advanced or um, our work or our pays is not you know that well when doctors are not that well paid here in training and um, there's just certain other issues that you kind of get familiarized with when you're in the system that make you realize that it might be better to pursue training abroad. It is a lot of additional cost, but I feel like it also comes with um, lifestyle improvement. Like, for yeah. example, uh, if I move to the UK, you know, uh, your medical is free, you have a better lifestyle, your schooling is free and such, um, which, are, which are just certain facts to look at. Um, in Pakistan yes. here, though, I feel like most doctors that are at very high posts here are all uh, foreign trained, which is just a little, um, I think it stems from this complex in our society that people who studied abroad have to be better. Coincidentally, they yeah. are. And most MDs here or uh, MRCS doctors here are incredible doctors and like I would trust them blindly. But... Um, there's also a bit of prejudice about how doctors yeah. training abroad are just better doctors 
So yeah. you end up getting better pay, you end up getting better clinics, you end up getting better jobs at better hospitals. So um, I think it was that, as well as the fact that I would like to train um, in a more medically advanced um, sort of setting. Yeah. So that I'm more up to date and more familiarized with what is actually going on in the world. Because in certain ways, Pakistan is still very primitive in its practice. Yeah. yeah. And so that's really interesting what you've just said. And it's made me think of so many questions. And so you think that, to that actually. <laughs> I would love to come back to Pakistan. Um, but at the same time, you can never tell because what if I get too used to the lifestyle in the UK because yeah. the way of Pakistani society and anywhere else in the world, they're very different societies. So um, you never know if you'll have an adjustment problem coming back. Even going to the UK, I feel like is a big adjustment. And once you're there, you're settled, uh, you have a family life. Um, yeah. I don't know how easy it would be to just come back to Pakistan unless it's yeah. worthwhile. Um, yeah. And you know, you're getting offered better jobs and, and such. Of course. And again, how do you feel about moving away from your family to a completely different new country and a different system and a different culture? How does that fit well with you? Um, that was, uh, in simpler words, that was always part of the plan. And my family has been extremely encouraging and uh, you know, allowing me to travel away from them. And I realized that it's like a seven hour flight. So it's not just uh, something I can do. I can't just decide to go visit my mom one day and you know, yeah. do that. Um, but I feel like to progress in life, you kind of have to make sacrifices and yeah. uh, to kind of get to where you want to be. You kind of have to compromise yeah. on certain things. And uh, yeah. I feel like my parents would be very proud of me if I do become a very, yeah. uh, like a, a good consultant in the UK, from the UK. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it's it's hard because we're very I am very dependent on my family. I've been living at home only. I've never really moved out, even though my sisters have gone away to university. I've um, stayed at home this entire time, and I'm 26 years old. So uh, it is difficult, but it's something I'm looking forward to. Right? Yeah, definitely. And I think it will be an amazing journey as well. And I'm sure it will. And <laughs> so the next question is. Made you consider uh, coming back to your point about leaving family. England is like a seven-hour flight away, which is uh, quite reasonable considering the US is hours and hours away, and Australia is just another corner of the world. So yeah. um, England is much closer. Uh, plus, it the what's since from research and from talking to people who are actually working in the UK, I've learned that uh, England has better work hours. They're more humane. And there's a better work-life balance there. I might be naive in saying that, but most people I've spoken to have uh, made me realize that it's actually very—it's um, actually not that bad, considering everywhere else in the world, medics barely have any time to themselves. Um, I most of the doctors that I trained under who are incredible surgeons and A&E specialists and uh, GPs—they've all trained from the UK which is yeah. me believe that the training program was also incredible, even though I know America has also given a lot of credit for producing great doctors. I've seen live examples of um, doctors from the UK who are just doing great things in Pakistan. Uh, another motivating factor, I think, for, uh, in, for that pushed me towards Flab was that um, the, 
I, I know that there are competitive ratios for every single field in the UK, and it might not be as easy for IMGs to uh, sort of get into certain specialities. But it's actually much. For example, I am really interested in getting into surgery, and in the US, it's almost impossible for me to do that. But in the UK now that they've also eliminated certain rounds and. Um, it's just made it easier for IMGs to apply to certain specialities, which I otherwise would not have been able to as um, an IMG in the US, for example. And how do you know that it's easier to apply for certain specialties in the UK comparison to those in the US? I think it's all, um, honestly, I, I really, I probably might not be able to get into a certain specialty, but it's just uh, something that I've come to know from discussion. I have, uh, there's always, for example, once you're in the system in the UK, and this is someone who's working um, as a resident, uh, an ST1 uh, general surgery in the UK right now, told me that once you're in the system, there is certain way to maneuver around and get into the speciality yeah. that you want. And as long as there's some sort of opening for me to pursue what I want eventually, I'm okay with working towards it. Yeah. Exactly. I think it's a very fair system in that sense. Yeah. I, yes. I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. And so when you were preparing for your PLAB 1 exam, how did you find that preparation? What did you use and how different was it to Pakistan's system? Um, actually, it wasn't very different at all. It was uh, very familiar. I felt very comfortable studying for it uh, because most uh, it was mostly clinics and we didn't really get into basic sciences, which would have been, uh, you know, some something I would have struggled with since because we did it like in our first and second year of med school and it's been quite a few years since we've revisited yeah. basic sciences. Um, I thought it was very similar to the way we were taught in our final year at med school. A lot of the questions, a lot of the answers were very similar to what I had uh, you know, studied uh, in, during my last couple of years. Um, I think, and, and I gave my plaque to whilst I was doing my first intern year in Pakistan. So it was very manageable for me. I studied for like two and a half months. I did flammable questions. I did flab keys. I did some mocks and um, I passed in my first try. So I thought it was quite manageable. And uh, honestly, it was a bit of a refresher from your knowledge because once you're working, you kind of forget to re you know, revisit your books. And I thought that was quite a good thing that I gave it during my intern year because my memory and my knowledge was refreshed. And uh, I found it quite helpful. Yeah, no, definitely. And so for future applicants mm -hmm. wanting to pursue the PLAB 1 exam, what resources or what tips would you give them to do that? Um, so I can obviously only speak from my own uh, experience. I found that labable was very helpful. Uh, what I would recommend is to not read the answers first. I would recommend starting with solving the questions, answering them according to whatever knowledge you have, because I feel like you learn more when you get an answer wrong than when you get it right. So I would start with questions first and uh, as many wrong questions as I would get, I would not let it discourage me and I would read the explanations, try to figure out why I picked the wrong answer and why a certain answer was the correct one. And once I, and, and that took, uh, took a bit of time uh, because a lot of my peers who were doing decided to do questions and they were going much quicker uh, and it was taking, I was struggling a bit but I realized that my concepts were much stronger because I was um, 
learning from my mistakes which is always the yeah. best strategy um so i would always tell students to always solve questions first figure out what their weak parts are flag certain questions and then yeah. um and time management is key when it comes to flag because i remember i barely had time to fill in my last um little answer sheet before my last answer the sheet before the bell rang and the time was up so yeah. time management is key always time your mocks when you're doing them uh, the only resources i used were the flabbable questions and mocks and i used flabby which are just um, notes combined uh, yeah. all these topics that are coming and it, they're just very easy to go through so once you're done with your flabbable questions you can always um revise everything through flab keys and i thought that really refreshed my memory and those were the only things honestly i used i didn't use anything else now that you preparing for your part 2 exam so the pandemic really <laughs> took me out for a ride this uh, year <laughs> my flab exam and uh, a lot of my peer flab 2 exam was postponed because we were in the red list from the uk and we couldn't travel uh, without having to quarantine in another non red list state for 10 years and Uh, considering that the flab two exam is pricier than flab one, uh, it wasn't it wasn't an option for everybody to go quarantine in another state and then travel to the UK, quarantine there as well. Um, yes. So essentially, my exam initially was supposed to be in uh, November, as in it was supposed to be in November this year, but uh, because we hadn't gotten off the red list in time, I was given the option to move my exam up, and I think I decided I. chose to do that rather than wait to get off the red list because um it's also a lot of anxiety and uh, it, it, the uncertainty of it all and this being confused i think wasn't helping me with the uh, exam preparation so i decided to just you know just relax and give uh, take another date for my exam so now my exam mm-hmm. is next year but i really feel like the pandemic uh because according to my the plan i had i was supposed to apply for my standalone program uh if i had gotten out of my flab 2 i would have been applying for my standalone program fy2 standalone program in uh january yeah and the applications open so i feel like because i moved my exam i kind of lost that opportunity and now i either have to wait for that for next year or i start applying for non training jobs or training jobs uh in the middle of the year so mm-hmm. uh it did sort of put a wrench in my plans but um you know what it's okay um the pandemic really ruined a lot of plans for a lot of people so i'm just happy yeah. to get the opportunity to sit for the exam at all okay how was your preparation for your ielts or oet exam oh um so i gave my ielts and i think that was also in 2020 and that was right before the country shut down uh for the pandemic so i was one of the lucky ones who was able to get away with it before anything happened um my ielts exam preparation is actually fairly easy because we've done um english language and english general under the british council as well so i felt like the format was a bit familiar plus i used sources such as liz ielts on uh, youtube and her website website and other um ielts preparatory videos on youtube as well as the computerized ielts exam videos that were available on youtube and uh, sort of maneuvered my way through that i think ielts is mostly just about learning the format of the exam and yeah. rather than you know learning how to write better you just have to learn how to write a specific way and uh, and and yeah i i passed it in my first try i found it relatively easier 
and uh, I was also relatively cheaper than OET. So I opted to go for that and uh, it was it was a good experience. I did not have any trouble preparing for it. Amazing. No, that sounds absolutely amazing. And so now that Plab One is done and IELTS is done, so what is your plan? So uh, because I was planning to go to the UK for a couple of months in November of this year, I did not really apply for a formal job anywhere because you need to work at least six months here to be able to get a letter or anything. And that's just sort of a prerequisite to apply for a job. So I decided uh, to do audits at my hospital that I was working in. I did two audits. Uh, one of them um, will I hopefully be published soon. Uh, let's keep your fingers crossed. And another one, I'm still working on it. We're facing a bit of trouble, but I'm hopeful that um, we'll get through that. And other than that, I've been working with the local government entities in the city for um, vaccination facilities and vaccination awareness. And through my blog, I've been working with WHO, Pakistan, to sort of just create um, awareness campaigns and videos. And uh, yeah, and I've been uh, growing my uh, Instagram a little bit. That's I've kind of been focusing on that quite a bit. Amazing. And it sounds like you've got such an amazing work-life balance as well, which is great to see. So what made you start your Instagram page? And how, how does that interlink with your medicine? Uh, was the first question, what are my audits about? Because that was... Yes. Kind of, oh, all right. Um, <laughs> my first audit was I did it with a resident working who also has now moved to the UK. So um, that was great. We did it together. We did an audit on uh, improving and geographical, um, basically improving discharge summaries of patients who've undergone angiography at the hospital. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of doctors are unaware uh, that the angiography patients specifically have a very certain um, they need certain things that have to be mentioned in the discharge summaries because it is an, it's a minimally invasive but a very dangerous procedure and there's a lot of um, things that you need to take care of when you're going home because uh, you know you can get uh, embolisms and you can get um, all sort of complications following the procedure so there are very certain uh, sort of red tape around going home exercising eating taking your medications which ones to start which ones to stop so um, what we had noticed in the hospital was that a lot of patients were coming in unaware of what they were supposed to do during a follow-up visit, which was also affecting their recovery. So we tapped into uh, one year's record of all discharge summary patients under a specific doctor, and uh, we sort of saw where they were lacking. We made a format on how to improve it by uh, you know, taking guidelines from AHA and other uh, governing entities as uh, the leading entities in uh, cardiovascular health and we came up with a format and this format was introduced to all the residents and interns who were in charge of making these discharge summaries and uh, now we've sort of uh, made them aware of things that we need to add and we will be doing a re-audit soon to see Amazing. if that's improved yeah. and another one was on uh, prescribing um, proton pump inhibitors so uh, there's uh, we noticed that all the patients, no matter what ailments they have, were being prescribed proton pump inhibitors, omeprazole, intuitions, etc. Uh, I mean, there was no real indication for it, but I think uh, a lot of antibiotics sort of automatically people add proton pump inhibitors with it. So we were just trying to see whether 
removing those would actually have an effect on patient's comfort or discomfort whilst they stay during the hospital, uh, during their hospital stay, I'm sorry. And uh, yeah, so this is just something that we're still working on. We've proposed it, we're waiting for approvals, and uh, I hope it sort of works out. Amazing. That sounds absolutely amazing. You're very well-rounded, and that is so inspirational to young females, especially in South Asia. So I honestly started my Instagram page as it was um, as a fashion page because I thought I was quite fashionable and I wanted to share that with people. Now it's a yes. completely different thing. Now it's just become more about lifestyle and medicine and um, all other things. But uh, essentially, I felt like I, my personality was really getting lost in my study and university life. Because as you know, medical students have, I don't know, we, we have a huge curriculum and it's we barely have time to get our heads off the books. So I, I thought I just didn't want to lose myself and my personality yeah. and what interested me um, yeah. in my studies. And so I decided to create this page. Um, I would just dress up to university. It was a very uh, casual thing. I would dress up to university, ask my friends to take pictures. And I would put it up and it was doing fine and until one day I decided to put up a medical post and it really blew up then and I realized that people really want to see what medical students are up to and what we're doing yeah. and how we're living. And then it yeah. just sort of um, entered into this realm of medical lifestyle blogging and uh, and I think it just got picked up by certain uh, international um pages as well for example UNICEF Pakistan and WHO Pakistan and, and then it just became this whole thing where uh, now I get to be on your podcast which is very exciting. <laughs> Amazing to see females entering medicine in a culture where usually it's quite taboo and having people like you actually explore medicine not just as an academic professional but showing the balance between work and that's you. very kind of you to say that's very kind of you to say but i would also like to reiterate that social media is all very curated so you'll always see me looking my best in my scrubs but you'll never see me you know covered in like blood and vomit <laughs> other gross stuff in yeah. my scrubs and i like to keep it as transparent as i can but um, at the end of the day you you have to curate a feed and it's all very put together but um it's, it's, it's not uh, all it's flowery not. and beautiful and exciting. <laughs> yes, it's, it's very dull sometimes. It's very dreamy. Of course. And I'm very happy that you've said that, actually. Make sure that people understand that medicine isn't actually as glamorous as people make out of it. Definitely. It, it really Definitely. isn't. Not at all. Yeah. And so my final two questions. So the first question is, so tell me a bit about your experience around COVID like in Pakistan? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, so um, I think because uh, I started my intern year beginning of 2020 when the pandemic hadn't even started and we just saw it bloom in front of our eyes. So we were learning as the public was learning. So a lot of misconceptions surrounding COVID and also the vaccinations was something that we were also sort of learning to debunk as they were coming up. So it wasn't knowledge that we had prior to, uh, you know, the public. So we were all learning together. Um, I think what was difficult was uh, not having all the answers for people. And uh, mm. because we were sort of navigating along with everybody. 
Um, so yeah. part of the pandemic was us just trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work, to isolate for um, 14 days or 10 days. And every single time there would be a new development and new guideline. And I think that would confuse the public and that would sort of make doctors look like they were doubling back on their word. And yeah. a lot of people, so a lot of public and patients, um, I uh, believe, lost trust in doctors because um, COVID is not something you can fix with, uh, you know, a pill or an injection. So yeah. there was like a multitude of things that we were trying for different patients with different levels of sickness, uh, illness. Um, yeah. And uh, I think that sort of confused patients. And but now I feel like we have a good hang of it. There's a certain regimen to follow, um, and there was there's a certain uh, protocol that we follow. And uh, so I think it's things are just becoming more more clear as uh, the days go by. Out curiosity, are there stigmas around COVID in Pakistan at the moment, or are people becoming more educated and aware to the fact that COVID does actually exist? Um, I feel like there are some, um, I feel like a, a very small percentage of the public still believes that it was a hoax and it was some sort of conspiracy. Uh, but majority of the people in Pakistan have been quite good with, uh, you know, following SOPs and following, uh, so because Pakistan was uh, a country that was in a lockdown for longer than most other countries were. So we were, I feel like even now we have smart lockdowns in certain areas and the government has been very vigilant in monitoring uh, the spread of disease in certain areas and really keeping check uh, of testing and uh, percentages and uh, locking things down because um, we are we have very limited medical facilities that are capable enough to cope with such a pandemic. So getting so risking all the, all of the population uh, exposing them to the disease by you know having the cities open would have been catastrophic and yeah um, so i feel like the government really helped contain it i, I remember when i was working um, during the pandemic in our first lockdown there wasn't a single person out in the street and we would have police patrolling the streets and it was very dystopic but i yeah. feel like that really helped control the spread of disease and we did have our spikes and we did have um, a lot of deaths unfortunately and a lot of cases and uh, complications but um, it was very vigilantly controlled by the government as well. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. And so now that, you know, of course, you've had this amazing journey for the past couple of years, so where do you envision yourself in the future? What are your plans? What do you want to do? Um, actually, that's very interesting that you asked me that because I had to ask me two years ago, I would have said, of course, I see myself becoming a general surgeon and there was no other ways about it. Uh, I, in fact, one of my motivations going to the UK was that I saw an opening. I thought maybe I could try for surgery there. But now that I've worked with, um, with critical patients in the isolation ward and uh, emergency patients coming in with COVID-related emergencies, I really, really feel more inclined towards A&E or um, things like critical care or ICU care because I realized during this that I was very good under emergencies and that was something I was very proud of because, um, I mean, I, I, I was surprised that I could do well in such stress situations. 
because I was a night doctor in the ward and as you know during COVID most patients fall even sicker during the night because the saturations drop and we were having multiple crashes on the floor and um, it was just the best adrenaline rush I could have had and it was just I wouldn't say exciting but I was just I, I think I was good at it and I, so I would like to praise, I'd like to praise myself for that here and say that I really enjoyed um, doing that it, it made me feel very active and I really loved taking care of critical care patients I felt like I could um, I was a better I was better suited for this lifestyle than you know like uh, a GP or like another amazing and I think that, you know what you've just said is so important because medicine is so vast there are so many specialties yeah. and there's so many opportunities within it and you're always discovering new things about yourself I might exactly. uh, love a &E now but maybe I love to be something else later and I think that's exactly. totally fine you get to change of your mind and you get to uh, be a part of whatever you feel most comfortable in and, definitely uh, I feel like sometimes medicine can be quite a bit of a race to get to the finish line. But yeah. if you're not enjoying yourself, then it's not worth it because you're putting in so much of your life um, training to be something. And if you're not enjoying it, then it's the, then you just never be good at it. No, yeah. exactly. I completely agree. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really thank enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. It was so nice talking to you. It was absolutely lovely to speak to you as well. Thank you.